The Planets Are Young, Part 4, Saturn, by Russell Grigg, originally published September 2019. We continue our response to the 2019 BBC TV series, The Planets, narrated by Professor Brian Cox. In this article, we are considering the fourth episode, titled Life Beyond the Sun, Saturn. Professor Brian Cox begins this episode with something of a eulogy for Saturn. Beyond the warm worlds of the inner solar system, beyond gas giant Jupiter, and the freezing regions far beyond the sun, lies Saturn, a planet made unique thanks to a nearly 300,000 kilometer wide ring of frozen water. Here, trillions of pieces of ice have been sculpted by gravitational forces into some of the solar system's most stunning vistas. It's almost as if God has taken snowflakes and sprinkled them over a gravitational field so we could see it. Of course, he's not talking about the creator god of the Bible. Next, Professor Cox gives viewers his evolutionary story for the origin of Saturn. Saturn began life as tiny worlds of rock and ice tumbling chaotically through space. Under the force of gravity, this abundant rock and ice combined, helping the young Saturn to grow into a giant. Within just a few million years of its birth, Saturn had grown as large as it could from rock and ice alone. And now it turned to another building material, the hydrogen and helium gas left over from the formation of the sun. Trillions upon trillions of tons of hydrogen and helium gas began to envelop the planet. However, as we have pointed out in previous episodes of this series, it is not a property of dust to spontaneously form rocks and for rocks to grow into planets, because if any rocks did begin growing in space, the gas through which they were traveling would act as a brake, slowing their speed and sending them into the sun. Without the gravity of a planet core, hydrogen and helium would not assemble around that core. Then Professor Cox makes this statement. Saturn was now so big it could contain nearly 5,000 Earth-sized worlds. But this vast, wild protoplanet was totally unlike the Saturn we see today. This is a surprising statement for two reasons. Number one, because today only 764 Earths would fit in Saturn, which means Saturn has somehow lost 84.7% of its former bulk, according to Cox. And number two, Cox doesn't tell us in the rest of this episode how this shrinkage of Saturn occurred. Cox briefly mentions Saturn's weather, apparently to get billions of years into the story before giving some more factual information. Now, there's been weather on Saturn for over 4 billion years. The storms on Saturn are amongst the most violent found anywhere in the solar system. Lightning 10,000 times more powerful than on Earth illuminates the sky. Then, he returns to his origin of Saturn story. He says that Saturn remains largely unchanged for billions of years, although very different from the planet we know today. But in time, its great size would lead to one more iconic transformation. He is referring to the formation of Saturn's rings. Saturn has many thousands of rings in several major ring divisions, 
they have been given letter names A through G in order of their discovery. The moon Enceladus produces the materials that compose the E-ring. Cox says, Saturn's rings are made up of trillions of ice crystals. They reflect sunlight back just as powerfully as the planet itself. Professor Cox is right about the composition of Saturn's rings. Galileo had observed them in 1610, but his telescope was not strong enough to work out the shape. Rather, he thought Saturn had attachments he called its ears. But in 1656, Dutch physicist Christian Huygens built a telescope powerful enough to resolve them and wrote that Saturn had a thin, flat ring that didn't touch the planet. Later scientists showed that there was more than one ring. But for another 200 years, the ring structure was a mystery, and scientists wondered how the rings could be stable. The mystery was solved by the creationist physicist James Clerk Maxwell, probably one of the top five scientists of all time, and one of Einstein's three scientific heroes. He showed that the ring could not be solid, nor liquid, or even a series of solid ringlets. Rather, it must be composed of lots of small pieces he called brickbats which are all orbiting more or less independently. Maxwell's work won the prestigious Adams Prize. Maxwell's paper was so convincing that it was undisputed and was vindicated by the Voyager space probes. Now back to Cox. He further said, Space probe Cassini made a startling discovery. If the rings had been around Saturn for billions of years, they should have been darkened and dimmed by the dust. But they are pristine and bright, and the reason is because they are young, nearly 4.5 billion years younger than Saturn itself. So, how to explain such a tremendous blow to evolutionary theory? No problem. The evolutionary story is very flexible. Professor Cox goes on. As Cassini analyzed the ice moons in ever greater detail, it became apparent that many of them are made of exactly the same material as the rings themselves. The rings and moons were profoundly linked, but for all the moons that Cassini saw, it now seemed likely that one was missing. When dinosaurs roamed the Earth, we now suspect Saturn had a moon in orbit that no longer exists. That's got at least 70 million years into the age of the rings. A moon perhaps some 400 kilometers across and formed almost entirely of ice. But this world was doomed. It found itself orbiting too close to resist the immense forces of Saturn's gravity. Up to 15 trillion tons of ice broke apart in orbit around Saturn. Because of the speeds the ice fragments were traveling, it's likely that just in a few days they spread out to encircle the great giant. Saturn's iconic ring had been born. Today, the giant ring has evolved, turning one ring into many. It's somewhat curious that young to an evolutionist is when dinosaurs roamed the Earth, that is 70 million years by evolutionist reckoning, and that the rings were not darkened and dimmed at all in that immense amount of time. A quote, short age for Bible-believing Christians is the approximate 6,000 years time frame from Genesis. We take God's word for it that this is when Saturn formed. Note that the Hebrew word for stars is broader than the modern meaning and includes meteors, shooting stars, and planets, formerly wandering stars, in Genesis 1, 14-19. Enceladus is minuscule in size compared with its planet, 
Saturn. This tiny moon is far too small to have retained its heat for billions of years. Enceladus has geologically active tiger stripes, as they're called, that spray plumes of water vapor and ice crystals hundreds of kilometers into space. This material forms Saturn's E-ring. Cox concludes his episode on Saturn with an extensive description of Saturn's small icy moon, Enceladus. As Cassini approached Enceladus, great plumes of water vapor and ice were erupting from its surface. Over 200 kilograms of material was being released every second. It seemed to be feeding one of Saturn's outer rings, helping to replenish it. Cassini was able to touch the plumes. As the plumes of water ice were analyzed, we discovered complex organic compounds, silica particles that, Cox says, could only have come from hot hydrothermal vents. Professor Cox then tells viewers, Many biologists believe that hydrothermal vents, like those that are almost certainly present on the floor of Enceladus's ocean, were the cradle of life on Earth. But this is a huge mystery for evolutionists. How could such a small body be active for billions of years? Even tidal heating by Saturn would not stop it freezing solid after 30 million years, 1% of its evolutionary age. It is true that many evolutionist biologists believe that life evolved on Earth in hydrothermal vents. However, it is not true that this is what actually happened. Nor is it even possible, let alone likely. Cox continues his vagueness. He talks of hot water in touch with ice and minerals, a reactive cauldron of chemistry, reactive gases, methane, molecular hydrogen in the plumes. And from all this he deduces, so there really is a possibility that there is life in orbits around Saturn today. However, we suggest that none of these factors have been proven to be the origin of life on Earth, and in fact, there is massive evidence that chemical evolution, as it's called, is scientifically impossible. Hence, there is zero possibility that there is life in orbits around Saturn. Professor Cox doesn't wish to be misinterpreted, so he backs away from what the majority of his viewers would consider life to be. If life is there, it's simply to be only the simplest and most primitive of organisms, and may only have arisen relatively recently. Now we don't know how long Enceladus has been geologically active, how long it's had an ocean. If it's only tens of millions or even hundreds of millions of years, that may not have been enough time to get life going. Of course, no amount of time will make the impossible possible. If physical and chemical laws dictate that something has zero chance of happening, time is irrelevant. Life is characterized by programmed information. This is something that does not arise spontaneously from raw chemistry. This is the fundamental dilemma of the materialist and is what caused Professor Antony Flew, formerly the world's leading atheist philosopher, to change his mind and declare that the evidence indicated that there must be some sort of God, some sort of designing intelligence. In the light of this known science, Cox's comments appears as declarations of faith that life can and did create itself, unsupported by any evidence. After the above exculpations, Professor Cox reverts to expounding his thesis. If there is life there, 
then we can glimpse its future because there are still hydrothermal vent systems present on Earth today. And life doesn't survive there, it thrives. Often found in the deep ocean basins along fault lines in the Earth's crust, hydrothermal vents are some of the richest and most complex ecosystems on Earth. Feeding off the abundant bacteria that breed there, these habitats support a multitude of strange and complex organisms. Whilst creatures like this will never exist on Enceladus, billions of years from now, it is just possible that this distant world may become home to its own unique forms of life. As we have just said, it doesn't matter how much life there may be in Earth's hydrothermal vents. There is no evidence whatsoever that life originated there by evolutionary processes. Quite the opposite. Thus, evidence of life flourishing in Earth's hydrothermal vents is not evidence whatsoever that life is happening or will ever happen on Saturn. The law of biogenesis, first proposed by the great creationist biologist and chemist Louis Pasteur, remains completely intact in real science, namely that life is only ever observed to come from pre-existing life. As an aside, what would happen in the unlikely event we were to detect, say, microscopic life elsewhere in the solar system? Intelligent life, as we have already indicated elsewhere, would be so far out of sync with the whole thrust of scripture, it would in effect falsify biblical creation. But, since life on Earth so clearly serves as part of humanity's created life support system, even finding microscopic life would be something most puzzling. Why would God have created it elsewhere than on Earth? So, if microbial life were discovered elsewhere, we would suggest it would most likely show affinity with microbes on Earth, as it would most likely have originated from here. How? Evolutionist astrobiologist Paul Davies, some years ago, pointed out that microbes within rocks blasted off of Earth by impacts could survive years of space travel to colonize other worlds. Secular scientists themselves have expressed concern that unmanned space rovers sent from Earth to Mars may already have taken Earth microbes with them to that planet. Having said that, the idea of life being discovered on Enceladus remains highly unlikely, and as far as real science is concerned, is still in the realm of speculative evolution, inspired science fiction. Nevertheless, for those like Cox committed to explaining this world without the Creator, Redeemer, and Judge of the Bible, such speculations are an important article of faith to be expressed as many times as possible. Did you know that the astronauts Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders were in a broadcast live from their lunar spacecraft Apollo 8 to Earth on Christmas Eve, 1968, and very appropriately read from Genesis 1, verses 1 through 10, how God created the heavens and the Earth? In the book Our Amazing Created Solar System, you will travel through the solar system via its pages and see overwhelming evidence each planet provides that the solar system is young that it was designed, and that the Genesis record of creation by God best fits the observed data. More than 16 topics by eight authors document that God created our amazing solar system. Get your copy of Our Amazing Created Solar System at creation.com 
forward slash store. I am Joseph Darnell. For everyone at CMI, thanks for listening. Thank you.